Welcome to Boundaries of Expression, the first in a new series of podcasts from Article 19, exploring the limits and challenges to freedom of expression. I'm Joe Glanville. Today we're talking about the right to truth with guests from Bosnia, Mexico and Northern Ireland. We've never been more conscious of the importance of championing truth in the face of fake news and alternative facts, as President Trump's administration infamously called it. Getting to the truth, challenging false narratives and winning access to information matters for all of us. It's part of our right to freedom of expression. But we also have a right to truth, a right to get to the facts, if we're a victim of gross human rights violations or if a relative is a victim. That includes disappearances, torture and extrajudicial executions, the very darkest territory of inhumanity. And it's often the families who fight the hardest to get the truth out. We're going to be talking about why that truth matters and just what it takes to fight for the facts. I'm joined by three guests from around the world who know firsthand the challenges of excavating the truth. All come from regions that have seen conflict and human rights violations. Sandra Peake is Chief Executive of Wave Trauma Centre in Northern Ireland, an organisation that offers support to anyone bereaved, injured or traumatised through civil unrest in Northern Ireland. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you. Sakko Muyagic works at the European Commission. He is a survivor of a Masca concentration camp, one of hundreds of camps in Bosnia and Herzegovina during the war in the 90s, where people were tortured and murdered. Welcome, Sakko. Thank you very much. Maria Devecki Gerli is Right to Truth and Accountability Coordinator with Article 19 in Mexico. Welcome, Maria. I'd like to start by asking all of you one short question first. And that's, do you think we need a right to truth? We have the right to access to justice. We have the right to information. So why do victims of human rights violations need a right to truth? Sandra, perhaps I can ask you first. I think the right to truth is a fundamental right for all families to have information, very clear information and accurate information on what happened to their loved ones. And I think when that doesn't happen, it devalues who their loved one was. It leaves them in a very precarious situation, sometimes in the case of disappearance here, not knowing whether their loved one was alive or dead. And in its absence, what happens is that other information comes in that actually may not be accurate. And families can be left with a very obscure view of what happened and inaccurate information. And myth sometimes ends up becoming reality, which is very unfair to families. And that can take some time for them to actually realise that it's, it's factually incorrect. In the case of the disappeared here, one of the issues that happened was that one part of how they were undertaken was that families were led to believe those people were still living because they put out information within the community. So you can see how families can really struggle when they're not given proper and factual information and when they're left for years really in an information vacuum. Thank you. Sacco. why do you think victims of human rights violations need a right to truth? Well, actually, 
next to what Sandra just said, I think this individual level uh, of us, in my case, it's me uh, and, and many, many people I've been with in, in the concentration camps who lost someone, who have been beaten or tortured themselves. I, my grandmother is missing, for instance. My best friend is missing. His, his parents are still looking for his body because we believe he's dead, but of course, but we, nobody knows where, where his remains are. And that's something which is very difficult for those who remained behind, in particular parents, I would say. But of course, children too. But I think it's really even worse to lose your child. This is something, of course, all of us, regardless of the situation, whether it's war situation or any kind of conflict or even in peace situation, we really need to know what happened with our loved ones. There are at least other two elements to it, or other two levels, if you want. One would be the legal one. I would not exaggerate too long on that one, but it's also a matter of people don't disappear. Let's not forget it. People don't disappear in air. Someone whether killed them or made them disappear. So uh, there is a clear criminal issue there, uh, which also triggers the other one, prosecution. Let's not forget that for, for me and for everybody who, who, who lost someone, at least I speak of people I know, and I think it, it really goes all around the world, is besides the fact that we want to find their remains, we also want to make sure that their disappearance slash death is not completely untouched, that those who are responsible are not just, you know, flying around like nothing happened. And the third one, if you look, look at from the, from the wider context, we have to realize that events which have led to disappearance of hundreds or thousands of people are actually history. There are history. So what are we leaving to new generations if we just simply leave it as it is, if we do not do our best to find the truth, as Sandra just said, to find what exactly happened, by whom, why, how, etc.? to also have a clear picture on certain events. In, in my case, in Bosnia, there are still, and I think it's all around the world again, there are so many discussions about what exactly happened in Srebrenica, who started the war, how many were killed, how many disappeared, how many were soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. There are so many discussions about things which are actually quite clear. So to sum up, this thir third angle is also very important to have it as a kind of truth for history books, truth for, for new generations to understand and learn from that. Thank you. Does that have a resonance for you, Maria? Yeah, of course. And I think I would add, besides what they have already said, that not only victims have a right to truth and to understand what happened, and relatives have the right to know what happened to their loved ones who have been disappeared, but also as a society, we have a right to truth. And I think this is key also for non-repetition. It's not only history, I mean, it's history, but also for not repeating what has happened. In Mexico, it's very clear that we had a series of disappearances and state-sponsored terrorism in the 60s to the 80s, and nothing happened, and disappearances are still in total impunity, and those disappearances happened 50 years ago, and because nothing happened and because... This is not history and this is not part of history books and what is taught in school. Now we are in a human rights crisis where more than 90,000 people are disappeared. So what happens when these crimes are not punished and when we do not know what happened is that they can be committed again and again. So history is absolutely a key part of the right to truth. And I'd like to 
talk to all of you a little bit more about how it matters, why it matters. And Sandra, your organisation, WAVE, works with families and survivors in Northern Ireland and you've supported 15,000 people. When you sit down with someone who's turned to your organisation for help, how often is the subject of the truth and the search for truth at the centre of, of that conversation? Well, in, in the majority of cases it is. I mean, essentially people can hold on and try to continue to survive. I mean, one of the issues throughout our conflict here was that it was the intimacy of violence. And yes, there was violence between communities, between the Protestant and Catholic community here and between the you know the army and the Catholic community. But it was around sometimes around the intimacy of violence where it was neighbours and neighbourhoods and, and that some people knew the people who were involved in taking, uh, killing their loved ones or indeed um, if they're abducted, abducting them. And that was very difficult because many people, we dealt here with it through silence. I mean, until the ceasefires in 94, people simply did not talk about it. And as a result, Joe, then whenever the ceasefires came and as peace progressed, and we've had 20 years of a, a peace process just over, people then started to come who had held on to this for all those years, who tried to raise their families, but had never spoken about what had happened and really then started to come forward with really, I suppose, the all that they had held over those years. And fundamentally, they wanted to know what happened to their loved one, why it happened, how it happened. And in the case of the disappeared, where, where were they? Because where were they buried? Where had they been taken to? And the other thing I think we have had here, even when we had a peace process, we had the early release of prisoners. And we also had sentences reduced that if you were involved in a conflict death, the maximum you would serve as a prison sentence would be two years. We've, we've, we have a number of things that were part and parcel of the peace process, but we didn't deal with those who have been directly bereaved and we didn't deal with the issues in the way that we should. And as a result, we've had a very ad hoc process where families have continued to struggle to get the truth about what happened and to access the records and it's been, and many families are still waiting and they haven't seen, really had the police investigate their cases from the day and hour their loved one was killed. So we have many people who are still, it, it's still very much alive. And I was very struck when Maria said, and it's, it's right, we have at the moment an unsteady peace here. We have a peace process, but paramilitaries continue to operate within our communities. And therefore, for many people, they're still watchful in relation to whether that could bring them any difficulties. So there's still a fear factor here. It's not as strong as it might have been throughout the Troubles, but it's still here for some people because the people who were involved in killing their loved ones sometimes look at them, smile at them, wink at them, you know, use their name as a form of intimidation. And that's still here within our community for some people which is very distressing. And those are about incidents that didn't happen last year, the year before. They happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's an uneasy situation for many victims and survivors here. Satko, you gave testimony at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and at the Court of Bosnia and Herzegovina in Sarajevo against high-ranking officials who were found guilty of atrocities in Amaska. That must have taken courage. How important was it for you to bear witness and to speak the truth of what happened to you and, and to what you saw in Amaska? It was very important. And, and indeed, it, it took some 
courage, although I don't like to speak this way about myself, but I, when I recall the, the months before going to the court, facing the commander of the camp and one of the, there were four of them and, and against two of them, I testified myself. It was quite difficult. And what I recall, I must say, is that I really was very much driven by this feeling of that I have to do it because it's not really enough to just speak about these murders, these people who were killed or, or went missing in front of my eyes. But I realized uh, this is the place where you should say this, you know, and this is the place where you really should say what you have seen, what I've experienced, uh, what I know. So going back to your question, I realized actually that it's not enough to, to talk about it. it. It gives a little bit more sense to it to really try to uh, connect the dots, connect the, the victims to, to the, those who are responsible for their disappearance or death. And that's what I did. And, and one more thing I, I, I would like to, to stress, it's, it's interesting. My father, uh, who was with me in the camp, Omarska, who actually saved my life, by the way, in 1992, he, when he heard that I was about to go to the court, he asked me, why are you doing it? And he said, maybe you shouldn't do it. And I said, dad, why? Why? I mean, because I know him as a quite brave man, actually, and, and very uh, a man who really lives for justice. So I was really, uh, it was strange for me to understand. And then after longer conversation, I realized he was afraid for my safety because in the region where I come from, it, the, the Bosnian Serbs are still a majority. We are, I'm coming from so-called Republic Srpska, which is part of Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina nowadays, mainly occupied by, by Serbs because everybody else was expelled at that time. Now we are going back, we rebuilt our homes, but still it's not really, really safe, let's say. And then when I realized this, I said to my dad, but listen, I, I mean, I do care about my safety. Of course, I have children too, and, and you know, but uh, it's just too important for me and I have to do it. And then there are hundreds of people who already have done it. So I think I should do it. And I said, but if you ask me not to do it, I will maybe not go because I'm, I'm afraid if something happens to you and the mother, then I would feel guilty. And then he said, no, no, no. He said, don't think about me. I'm thinking about you. I said, dad, maybe you should think about you and I'll think about me. <laughs> and that was our deal. He said, actually, he was very glad that I'm going to do it. He was just afraid of my own safety. And I said, listen, give it back to my hands. And I just want you to know I, I want to do it and I don't want to be blamed or to feel guilty if something happens to you, maybe because of this. And he said to me, I quote, my son, my life stopped in 1992. Everything else is a bonus. And I think you should do it. And I did. And, and one more thing I want to say, I'm also glad I did it because very last five victims of Camp Omarska were three women and two men. And their disappearance, I could clearly connect to the camp commander because I saw that he was there. I saw that he was involved in this. To sum up, I really, really felt different person after, after this day, after eight hours sitting in the court, telling not only about this particular issue I just spoke about, but many, many other things I've been through. I've seen houses burning and so on, people being killed in front of my eyes. It really felt somehow to closing a chapter in a way, you know, closing a chapter and, and, and being able to go on with my life in, in a different way than I, than I did until, until that particular day. That's an incredibly graphic, powerful example of, of what it takes to speak out. It clearly takes courage and the conversation that you had with your father. It's potentially very dangerous if you exercise that right to truth. And I'm wondering, Maria, in Mexico, that must be a very real 
consideration for people in thinking about speaking out? Yeah. I mean, in Mexico, we have seen cases of relatives of the disappeared who are looking for their relatives or looking for justice, and they have been killed or disappeared themselves. So when we think about those who are speaking out, we know that it's it's dangerous for them. It puts them in a position where they can be easily targeted. In Mexico, contrary to other places in Latin America, there has not been like a social recognition of the state repression of the 70s and 80s, but it's always been the relatives of the disappeared and the survivors of the, this repression who have spoken about what happened. In this sense, the relatives of the disappeared, especially the mothers, sisters, wives, they are the ones who have spoken out and who have told us what happened. And it's through them that we know who the disappeared are and who the victims are of extrajudicial killings. And it's important for us to understand that when they give testimony, there's also like a social duty of accompanying that testimony and understanding the importance they have. We produced a report in Article 19, uh, Mexico and Central America, specifically on the importance of the testimony of the survivors and relatives of the disappeared, relatives of victims of human rights violations, to the right to truth. Because we know that when the state denies what's going on, it's only through these testimonies that we know what's happening. In a country with more than 90,000 people disappeared and hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed, it's only through the testimonies of the survivors and the testimonies of the relatives of the victims that we still know what happened and what's going on. And they are the ones that, even when they know that it's dangerous to do it, speak out and allow us to get to know the victims, but also to get to understand history and what's going on in Mexico. So I think we've touched in, in some of what you've said and, and what Satko was saying as well on the, on the obstacles to truth, of getting to the truth. And Sandra, in Northern Ireland, a massive obstacle has just been erected by the government in the United Kingdom which announced in July that they were ending criminal prosecutions in Northern Ireland relating to the Troubles and that they're setting up a body that will be modelled on truth commissions. And there's been an outcry about it across the communities. And it raises a very big question, which is, can you have truth without justice? Um, no, I, I, it's a very difficult situation we have at the moment. We've come from a process of waiting for investigations and even limited investigations last year announced by the British government now to a year later where they're saying that they will bring an effective statute of limitations in and an amnesty in and that um, families will not be able to have any right to, to justice. I think many families didn't expect cases to go to court, but they expected their loved ones' cases to be fully investigated and for every strand of information to become available. And it has caused absolute devastation for families to think that that those two things now are being taken off the table, that they that they won't be able to establish full truth because 
our experience here to access as much information, it needs to be a criminal justice process. And it's only if it has that process that it has the compelability to provide information that are within our state records, within policing and um, all the facets around intelligence. And, you know, to think that that's been removed has caused great distress because families feel that their loved ones do not matter. They feel their loved ones' lives are being devalued. They feel that an amnesty, uh, which is is an easy solution for, for government, it allows them to wash their hands off it, but it's the mess that it leaves behind at a community level and on the society level, because as I said earlier, we still have paramilitary groups operating and there's every chance that they will continue to operate thinking with impunity because they're not, never going to be held to account. And so fundamentally, it undermines the rule of law and it also undermines the very peace process that we've been working from over the, the last 20 plus years. So we're in a very uh, difficult situation for families and it's brought a lot of trauma, Joe, to the fore. I mean, it really has, trauma has bubbled up and surfaced. And what people have talked about is that they're being rewounded again and it's as if their loved one is dying over again. It's a double injustice to families if this proceeds and I suppose our hope is that there will that it won't proceed. It will go, there's every sense it will go before the Parliament at Westminster in, in autumn. And we're hoping that sense will prevail and they will realise the huge damage they will do to Northern Ireland if they proceed with this and to many families who are living with the pain of, of bereavement and the injustice that's associated with the loss of their loved one. Thank you. So if we move from Northern Ireland to Bosnia, Sacco, where there has been a process of justice. Former Bosnian Serb leader Ratko Mladic was convicted in 2017 on charges of genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes that included the killing of more than 8,000 Muslim men and boys in Srebrenica in '95, And his conviction was upheld in June. But what you're facing in Bosnia is that genocide denial, glorification of war criminals like Mladic are increasing. I'm wondering what you think the solution is. Well, in, in this case, actually, you might be surprised, but the solution is quite easy, I would say. <laughs> and, and the reason is very simple. The policy of, of genocide denial, the policy of glorification of war criminals, even the policy of hiding of war criminals, it's still happening in Belgrade in Serbia. I must say that I'm, I'm, I'm following the news. I'm, I'm really trying to be very fair to everybody. I don't want to accuse anybody of anything. But if you looked uh, how the current president of Serbia, Vucic, the prime minister, uh, the minister of interior, Vulin, etc., they are denying the decisions of international tribunal in The Hague, which the sentences which have been already done for in several cases, despite the fact that Serbia even obliged itself towards the EU, towards Brussels to recognize these decisions. So this is not just a, a uh, someone on the street not, not willing to recognize something to someone else. It's the president of a country who already acknowledged that they will recognize these, these decisions in order to move on, in order to have better relations with their neighbors, uh, in order to deal with their past, et cetera, et cetera. So to go back again to your question, what should be done is that, that there should be much more international pressure, not only from Brussels, but also from the main capitals in Europe and, and UN to stop with this. In my opinion, the moment the politicians, the high ranked politicians stop with this uh, denial, which is not only hurting us as victims and, and the survivors, but it's also actually stopping the process of reconciliations uh, among people. 
how can I trust the Serb on the street who tells me Domarska did not exist? How can I speak with them? If they tell me this was an open refugee center, that's what I learned at school. And I saw hundreds of people dying there and I almost died myself there. So what, what to do? To sum up, we need a Willy Brandt in the Balkans. And obviously, current politicians in Belgrade or anywhere else in the Balkans are not ready yet to do it. But I, I really believe that uh, we need something like Willy Brandt did in 1970 in Warsaw. Uh, that was the way Germans started dealing with their past. And I really must say, if I look at their history, I really believe that they did a very well job in order to clean their past, in order to really become a nation which is respected by everybody else mm. in, in the world. So I think that's what, what is needed in the Balkans too. Thank you. And for people who might not remember the extraordinary significance of what Willy Brandt did, he was the former Chancellor of Germany. He went down on his knees in, in front of the memorial at the Warsaw Ghetto. Maria, you've got a problem with denial in Mexico as well, haven't you, with the president denying the facts of human rights violations? We are now facing like an interesting time because just a few days ago, the president announced a human truth commission for the human rights violations committed in the 70s and 80s. And we know that that is very important. But the problem that we are facing in Mexico is that the president who took office in 2018, Andres Manuel López Obrador, he's very keen on speaking about human rights violations committed in the past, but not to talk about what's going on today or in his presidential period. So the government has produced a series of public apologies for human rights violations committed in the past, like in the 70s, in the 80s, but also more recently. But every time he speaks like publicly, he denies that human rights violations are being committed today. And there are two things that it's important to point out on this. One is the fact that, for example, disappearances are a continuous crime. So even if they were committed in the 70s, we don't know where the disappeared are or where the, the bodies are or the living people are. The disappearance is committed every day. So even with the crimes of the past or so-called of the past that we think it's better to call them committed in the past because they are still being committed now, the president and the state have an obligation, an international obligation with truth and justice and non-repetition. But also we have all the human rights violations that are committed today in Mexico, uh, disappearances, extrajudicial killings, torture, migrants massacres in the north of the country. And with the denial of the president, it's a re-victimization for those who are victims of these crimes because when their relatives or the survivors speak out and say what happened about a massacre, a disappearance, and the president, who is the most important authority figure, denies that disappearances or human rights violations in general are being committed, it's like he's denying their histories and he's denying their experiences. So we are glad that he announced that there is going to be a truth commission for analyzing and coming to terms with the human rights violations committed from 65 to the 90s, to 1990. 
But we still think that he's not willing to tackle these appearances and human rights violations in general that are being committed today. He announced this Truth Commission on the 30th of August, and then on the 1st of September, that is his presidential report, let's say, that they do every year, he denied that human rights violations are being committed. So it's like contraposition of, on the one hand, saying that they understand that human rights violations were committed in the past, but at the same time not acknowledging that they are being committed today. And also something that is very worrying for us is that it's not only that he doesn't acknowledge that uh, human rights violations are being committed every day, but also the lack of uh, justice and justice initiatives for all the crimes, the crimes of the past and the crimes of the present. And as I said, when there is impunity, there is also fear, fear of speaking, but also fear of just living because we know that anyone can be a target for disappearances in Mexico. Thank you. We've run out of time for the podcast, but there's still so much more to talk about. I'd like to thank all the guests for taking part today. Sandra Peake, Satko Muyagic and Maria Devecki Gurley. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. If you'd like to find out more about the right to truth and Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org. <laughs>